Hello and welcome to another episode of But Have You Heard About? I'm your host, Courtney. I'm going to be doing a solo episode today because it's been so long and kind of out of practice of letting other people talk with me in general. So anyways, I'm so excited for all of you guys to be here listening to this wonderful episode. So just to give a little backstory, I went down a rabbit hole because I was like, oh, you know, Britney Spears and her conservatorship. I think it'd be great to kind of talk about you know the history of conservatorship, especially in the US and how it's used in cases of those that it makes you basically unable to fend for yourself, fight for yourself and be able to defend yourself, especially those, you know, that are considered weaker and like what maybe is a history, like where it has come from, how does it, you know, go through time, yada, yada, you know, normal Courtney bullshit shenanigans. Let's just be real. Well, it led me down the rabbit hole to the Osage Indian murders. If you don't know about them, I didn't know about them until I started going down this rabbit hole. Did you know that basically the laws of conservatorship were imposed on those of the Osage Native Americans because they had head rights to lucrative annual royalties on oil in like the 1920s? Yeah, yeah, no, didn't know. I didn't know until today either. So don't worry. Today is a learning day for everyone. So want to give some backstory on the Osage Native Americans. They are located in what would or they were located in what would now be considered Osage County, Oklahoma, which is west of Tulsa. And during the time of the 19 of 1910 to 1930s is when the Osage Indian murders occurred. And it led to a number of unsolved murders collectively called the Reign of Terror by local newspapers. And it lasted from 1921 to 1926. And this included about 60 or more wealthy, full-blood Osage Native Americans that were killed between 1918 to 1931. While the newspapers reported 1921 to 1926, it actually happened a lot longer term. So a lot of these murders were committed for the purpose of taking over land and wealth of of those Osage members because of how the royalty system was set up. Osage Native Americans were able to be a part of a headright system, which refers to a legal grant of land given to settlers during the period of European colonization in the Americas. So these headrights that the Osage Native Americans had earned them lucrative annual royalties, like they became known as the richest group of an, like an individuals in the world, man for man. So to give a little bit of background on this oil rights and how we came to this term of having a reign of terror and people just being like, I'm going to murder everybody and inherit all their head rights. In 1897, oil was discovered on the Osage Indian Reservation. The U.S. Department of the Interior managed leases for oil exploration and production on land owned by the Osage Nation through the Bureau of Indian Affairs and later managed the royalties, paying individuals as part of the process of preparing Oklahoma for statehood. The federal government allotted 657 acres to each Osage on the tribal rolls in 1907. Thereafter, they and their legal heirs, whether they were full Osage or not, had head rights to royalty and oil production based on the allotment of lands. So if you were on that tribal uh, role in 1907 and you only had two heirs, they split your 657 acres. However, you wanted to do that for your heirs. If you didn't have an heir, maybe it went to, you know, what your eldest nephew or eldest niece, if you had other nieces and nephews, you didn't give them anything. So maybe that one winds up having more than the 657. The head rights could be inherited by legal heirs 
including non-Osage members. You did not have to be full-blood Osage tribal member to inherit these head rights. See where this is going? Criminals, they always think ahead. So the tribe itself held the mineral rights communally and paid its members by a percentage related to their holdings, aka how many acres you have. By 1920, the market for oil had grown dramatically and brought much wealth to the Osage people. I mean, obviously, we had the invention of the car. Thanks, Henry Ford, for the production of all of those Model Ts. In 1923 alone, the tribe took in more than $30 million, which is close to probably $500 million now. People across the U.S. would read about the Osage, which again, as I mentioned, they're called the richest nation, clan, or social group of any race on earth, including the whites, man for man. So you have the Osage over here with all this extra wealth that they definitely weren't expecting. It's not technically the Great Depression yet. You've got like 10 years before that, so money is money. And they were using these royalties to send their children to private schools, maybe buying fancy cars, clothes, jewelry, traveling. And they became such interesting oddities is a nice way to say it, that you had newspapers across the country that would cover their activities. Because again, they became incredibly wealthy almost overnight because of the need and dependence on oil and how much oil was in their land. So this oil boom over in Oklahoma not only attracted tens of thousands of oil workers, it also attracted many white opportunists to Osage County. And while some of these individuals were entrepreneurial, Others were criminal, seeking to separate the Osage from their wealth by murder, if necessary. Well, as always, white people just obviously know more about what others should be doing. The United States Congress passed a law in 1921, which required that courts appoint guardians for each Osage of half-blood or more in ancestry who would manage the royalties and financial affairs until they demonstrated competency. Under the system, even minors who had less than half Osage blood had to have guardians appointed, regardless of whether the minors had living parents. The courts appointed the guardians from local white lawyers or businessmen. The incentives for criminality were overwhelming. Such guardians often maneuver legally to steal Osage land, their head rights or royalties. Others were suspected of murdering their charges to gain those head rights. So around 1921, eight lawyers alone were working in Pahuskita, which was the Osage County seat, which had 8,000 residents. The number of lawyers in Osage County, those eight, was said to be greater than Oklahoma City, which had 140,000 residents at the time. 8,000 residents had eight lawyers. 140,000 residents had eight lawyers. I wonder why. Dun, dun, dun. In 1924, the Department of Interior charged two dozen guardians of Osage with corruption in the administration of their duties related to their charges, but all avoided punishment by settling out of court. Tale as old as time. These guardians were believed to have swindled their charges out of millions of dollars. In 1929, 27 million was reported as still being held by the quote-unquote guardian system, the organization set up to protect the financial interests of 883 Osage families in Osage County. So we've talked about a little bit of fraudulent shenanigans going on with legality reasons of how can you control this money and how can you get this money. But let's talk about murders, because if you murder, then maybe you just inherit all of it as opposed to having to maybe go to court in 10 years to be like, yo, man, 
my guardian didn't like that person be like, yo, man, my guardian didn't pay me what they're supposed to pay me. They have all this extra money. I'm definitely competent. I went to school. Who knows? So back to murders. At the center of most of these murders was the prominent local cattleman, William Hale. Like, again, there were 60 murders total that were linked to the Osage tribe's head rights. So we're going to start in 1921 with these murders. On May 27, 1921, local hunters discovered the decomposing body of 36-year-old Anna Brown in a remote ravine of Osage County. They couldn't find the killer. Local authorities ruled her death as accidental because, you know, alcohol poisoning at the time. And we're just like, eh, not going to worry about it. She was divorced. So probate awarded her estate to her mom, who was Lizzie Kyle. Kelsey Morrison, a petty criminal, later admitted to murdering her and testified that Hale um, had asked him to do so. Along with his mission, Morrison implicated Hale's nephew and Anna Brown's ex-boyfriend, Brian Burkert, in a murder. And on the same day that Anna Brown's body was found, Brown's cousin, Charles Whitehorn, or Charles Williamson, was discovered near Pawhuska on the same day. Whitehorn had been shot to death. Two months later, Lizzie Q, Kyle, so Anna Brown's mom, was killed as well. By that time, Lizzie had head rights for herself and inherited the head rights from her late husband and two daughters. Her heirs became fabulously wealthy. In 1923, Henry Roan, another cousin of Brown's, was found in his car on the Osage Reservation, dead from a shot in the head. Roan also had a financial connection with Hale, having borrowed $1,200 from the cattleman. Hale fraudulently arranged to make himself the beneficiary of Roan's $25,000 life insurance policy. A little over a month later after Henry Roan was found dead, a bomb destroyed the residence of Anna Brown's sister, Rita Smith, killing Rita and her servant, Nettie Brookshire. Rita's husband, Bill Smith, sustained massive injuries from the blast and died four days later. Shortly before his death, Bill gave a statement implicating his suspected murderers and appointed his wife's estate. Later investigations revealed that the bomb contained five gallons of nitroglycerin. This is some crazy shenanigans, okay? So a few months later, still in 1923, Hale and Burkhart put George Bigheart on a train to Oklahoma City to be taken to a hospital. There, doctors suspected that he had ingested poisoned whiskey. Bigheart then called an attorney, William W.W. W. Watkins Vaughn of Fahuska, asking him to come to the hospital as soon as possible for an urgent meeting. Vaughn complied, and the two men met that night. Bigheart had said he had suspicions about who was behind the murders and had access to incriminating documents that would prove his claims. Vaughn boarded a train that night to return home, but turned up missing the next morning when, on this train, they tried to awake him. But his spot on the train wasn't even used. Like, his little hub thing wasn't even there. His body was later found with his skull crushed beside the railroad tracks near Pershing, about five miles south of Pahuska. And then, sadly, Big Heart died at the hospital that same morning. So secrets died with them. Just between the years 1921 and 1923, 13 other deaths of full-blooded Osage men and women who had a guardians appointed by the courts were reported. And by 1925, at least 60 wealthy Osage had died and their land had been inherited or deeded to their guardians, who were local white lawyers and businessmen. The Bureau of Investigation, which predates the FBI, which is what the FBI turns into, 
found a low-level marketing contract killers to kill the Osage for the wealth. Like, what? The fact that the Osage Tribal Council brought in the Bureau of Investigation because local and state couldn't put the picture together. Whether they were paid off by Hale or they were being extorted by Hale, threatened into silence. Same with anyone who had information about the deaths either. So in 1925, Osage tribal elders from the tribal council, with the help of one local law officer, James Monroe Pyle, sought assistance from the BOI when local and state officials could not solve the rising number of murders. It was kind of like, oh no, there's more murders. Pyle presented his evidence of murder as well as the conspiracy theories around the headrights and requested an investigation. The BOI sent Tom White to lead the, an investigation. Because of the large number of leads and the perception that the police were corrupt, White decided he would be the public face of the investigation while most of the agents would work undercover. He rec- recruited a former New Mexico sheriff, a former Texas Ranger, John Berger, who had worked on the previous investigation, Frank Smith, and John Wren. Wren is a Na- an American Indian of the Ute Nation, which had previously been a spy for the Mexican revolutionaries. Taking four years to finish their investigation, they discovered a crime ring led by Hale, known in Osage County as the King of the Osage Hills. Hale and his nephews, Ernest and Brian Burkhart, had migrated from Texas to Osage County to find jobs in the oil field. Once there, they discovered the immense wealth of the members of the Osage Nation from royalties being paid from leases on oil-producing lands. Hale's goal was to gain the head rights and wealth of several tribe members, including his nephews, Osage wife, the last survivor of her family. To gain part of the wealth, Hale persuaded Ernest to marry Molly Kyle, a full-blooded Osage. Hale then arranged for the murders of Molly's sisters, her brother-in-law, her mother, and her cousin, Henry Roan, to cash in on the insurance policies and head rights of each family member. Other witnesses and participants were murdered as investigation of the conspiracy expanded. Molly and Ernest Buckhart inherited all the head rights from her family. Investigators soon discovered that Molly was already being poisoned at this point. So once Molly moved away from Osage County, she divorced Ernest and recovered. And afterwards, their children inherited all of Molly's estate. So William Hale, his nephews, and one of the ranch hands they hired were charged with the murder of Molly Kyle's family. Basically, like a whole family that wiped them out. Hale was formally charged with the murder of Roan who had been killed on the Osage Reservation land, making it a federal crime. Two of his accomplices had died before the BOI investigation was completed. Hale and his associates were convicted in state and federal trials from 1926 to 1929, so about four years, which had changes of venue, hung juries, appeals, and overturned verdicts. In 1926, Ernest pleaded guilty to being part of the conspiracy. John Ramsey confessed to participation in the murder of Roan as soon as he was arrested. He said that Hale had promised him $500 and a new car for killing Roan. Ramsey met Roan on a road outside of Fairfax, and they drank whiskey together. Then Ramsey shot Roan in the head. Subsequently, Ramsey changed his story, claiming that the actual killer was Curly Johnson. It's a great name. His accomplice, Brian Burkhart, another nephew, had turned state's evidence. The trials received national newspaper and magazine coverage. Sentenced to life imprisonment. Hale, Ramsey, and Ernest Burkhart later received parole despite protests from the Osage. Various residents of Pawhuska petitioned the Oklahoma governor at the time, Jack C. Walton, to conduct a full investigation of the deaths of Charles Bigheart and his attorney, William Vaughn. Governor Walton assigned Herman Fox Davis to the investigation. 
Shortly after the assignment, Davis was convicted of bribery. Oops. Although Walton later pardoned Davis, the investigation of Big Heart and Vaughn was never completed. So never really know what happened. In the case of the Smith murders, Ernest was soon convinced that even his wife's money and his uncle's political influence, his uncle being William Hale and his wife being Molly, could not save him. He changed his plea to guilty and asked to be sentenced to life imprisonment rather than receive the death penalty. He turned state's evidence, naming his uncle as responsible for the murder conspiracy itself. Ernest said that he had used a person named Henry Grammer as a go-between to hire a professional criminal named Asa Ace Kirby to perform the killings. Both Grammer and Kirby were killed before they could testify. Like, oh no, they were killed, so it's your word versus theirs. Ernest Burkhart's attempt to kill his wife failed. Molly, a devout Catholic, had told her priest that she feared she was being poisoned at home. The priest told her not to touch liquor under any circumstances. He also alerted one of the FBI agents. Molly recovered from the poison that she had already consumed. And once those trials were over, divorced Ernest. Hell yeah, go Molly. She died of unrelated causes, though, in 1937. So just a little over 10 years later, and again, her children inherited all of her estate. And while this was just a small example of those murders, there are so many deaths that happened, especially to a lot of women, um, or especially to several Osage women, that the BOI at the time was convinced that they had been committed or ordered by their husbands. And most murders of the Osage during the early 1920s completely went unsolved. And a lot of these deaths were covered up by false death certificates. You can say that somebody died from liver poisoning or kidney failure, kidney disease, uh, alcohol poisoning, because again, you have this horrible stereotype about the First Nations with alcohol. Just a few years later, so these murders started in 1921. By 1925, Congress is like, oh shit, we fucked up. We need to change these laws because literally we are getting people murdered. I mean, I don't think in their conscience they were thinking that, but they were like, this is just becoming ridiculous. So by 1925, Congress passed a law prohibiting non-Osage from inheriting head rights from Osage who had half or more Native American ancestry. So they took out that, you know, you had to be competent. So the Department of Interior continued to manage the trust land and pay fees to Osage with those head rights. The year 2000, the tribe itself filed a lawsuit against the department, alleging that federal government management of the trust asset had resulted in historical losses to its trust fund and interest income. This also came after a major class action suit had been filed against the Departments of Interior and Treasury about four years earlier in 1996 by Eloise Cobble Blackfeet on behalf of other Native Americans for similar reasons. In 2011, the U.S. government settled with the Osage for $380 million. The settlement also strengthened management of the tribe's trust assets and improved communications between the Department of Interior and the tribe. This has also been claimed to be the largest trust settlement with one tribe in U.S. history. So as always, money brings about greed, brings about murder, and criminal acts that I don't think many people think of, but especially during the early 20th century, we had a lot of lawlessness, and this was even before people became way more desperate during the Great Depression. And while you had all these opportunities, you also had so many unbelievable criminal, criminal activity happening and taking control of other people's assets. Saying that you're not competent enough, even if you're a minor or an adult, to take care of money handed to you because of your birthright? Let's be real. Literally, in the past, in European societies, children would become kings and queens, and they would get all the money. They may not be able to make rules, 
but they would inherit whatever came with a title because their parents died. So yeah, you definitely may have had someone there to be like, hey, I'm part of your trustee, but they at least were a little bit more respectable than these white businessmen and lawyers. And just a reminder, they're white men, just white men, no one else, that were there in Oklahoma taking advantage of a law that basically they put in place. It's also interesting to know that this kind of helped develop the FBI from just the Bureau of Investigation to the Federal Bureau of Investigation and helping them kind of solidify their hold of being more than just, you know, this is federal. It's on federal land on an Indian reservation. We can take, you know, lead over this in a case. You definitely can read more about this as well as finding, you know, stories of people who are like, hey, I have family members. You know, I was told passed away from, as I mentioned before, kidney disease, or even saying that they committed suicide at the ripe old age of 20. And really, it was because you had the person that was managing this wealth of those Osage members basically being like, yo, you're just gonna die, and I'm gonna take your money, and I'm gonna give myself the inheritance, and even putting life insurance policies. I mean, William Hale himself was a successful-ish cattleman in Oklahoma. He didn't necessarily need the money, but he became greedy, as a lot of white people apparently are, especially in the early 20th century. And he just convinced and coerced his own family to help in these murders, as well as the ranch hand as well. But again, Hale was only convicted for one killing, and that was the shooting death of Anna Brown's cousin, Henry Rowe. No one else. And the fun story, or the irony, weirdness of it, because he got that $25,000 insurance policy on Roan's life, which he cashed about a week after the man's death. He was also one of Roan's pallbearers. And he was paroled in 1947 and spent you know, some of his life in Montana and died in Arizona in 1962. But the fact that they were paroled so quickly after thinking about the fact that they tried to basically murder bloodlines, it's a, it's a little too much to think of. But anyways, history is not always fun and appealing and shiny. And with that, I'm going to lead you to maybe hopefully go down some rabbit holes yourselves when it comes to looking up fun, interesting cases or things that are especially in current times. But as always, uh, thank you so much for joining me on But Have You Heard About? I'm your host, Courtney, and I hope you have a fabulous rest of your day, evening, morning, coffee, whatever it may be, but have a fabulous rest of your day. Bye.